Hi, I'm Steve Weiner. You have no idea who I am, but I've been watching Mike Chisholm show because no one knows who he is either. Welcome once again to the Letterman Podcast. My name is Mike Chisholm. We've finally done it. We've got our first camera person on the Letterman Podcast, and I am really excited about it. Dan Flaherty uh, has uh, has a veteran, veteran um, camera person for CBS, uh, and then it goes further back with other with other companies, but graduated in 1982, uh, been a cameraman for CBS for a long time, and everything from the news to the World Series to the Olympics, all sorts of stuff. In many respects, culminating on his one of his very favorite assignments ever, uh, Late Show with David Letterman, um, from just a couple of years in, uh, all the way to the very, very, very end. And, and it's cool because uh, much of the camera work that he did wasn't just the home base stuff. It was also the stuff on 53rd Street and whatnot. We get into that. A lot of memories, a lot of stories. Uh, that Dan tells a lot of fun, a little bit of show and tell as well. So if you're, if you're listening uh, to this episode, you might want to come back and watch one of the video uh, versions of it as well for, for some of the show and tell stuff that we do um, videos on the Spotify. It's on the YouTube, that kind of a thing. Uh, the Letterman podcast is one sponsor, one sponsor only. And that is hello-deli.com. Uh, go to hello-deli.com. If you want merchandise, let it late show with David Letterman merchandise, mugs and shirts and hats and all that kind of stuff. Uh, the hello-deli.com Rupert G the legendary Rupert G uh, will be happy to send you your late show with David Letterman uh, merchandise and uh, buy them for gifts for people. They're a throwback. Now it's a throwback. There's so much throwback stuff out there right now. Um, vintage, even uh, a very cool gift for yourself or your loved one. Um, this episode is a lot of fun for me. I enjoyed it a lot. Dan has just an absolute um, lovely uh, body of experience that goes really through everything from the series of the serious uh, when it comes to the news all the way to the zany antics of Late Show with David Letterman. Uh, the, Late Show, uh, the Letterman podcast is proud to present this episode with cameraman Dan Flaherty. Dan Flaherty, I am so excited that you are here today. I have just at this very moment uh, decided the first question I'm going to ask any cameraman that comes on the Letterman podcast. Uh, this is the question I'm going to ask if I remember. Have you ever sustained an injury being hit by a blue card or a pencil? No, thank goodness. Do you have some of Dave's re regular pencils there? Uh, I, I've got, I've got one of the, uh, I've got one of these ones. They've, they've got erasers on both ends. The, the, I've got one of the dual purpose uh, eraser pencils. Eraser, and I assume yes. that these were created uh, to avoid camera and uh, cameramen and other people injuries. I assume that's why they were created, I, I but I, we haven't talked about the pencils yet. Actually, do you know the origin? Actually, yeah, sure. I actually grabbed one one day at the end of the show. I went up and stole one to come home to give to my daughter. And yes. she thought it was hysterical. There's a, how do you write with it? Well, you can't really write with it. It's got erasers. On. I don't even know how they got it made up, but uh, I'm sure there's a pencil company would do it as a special order. Absolutely. Uh, this is one of the things that actually, um, and I love, we're going to talk about, we're going to do some show and tell. So for those who are actually uh, listening to this episode of the Letterman podcast, this is one you might want to jump back onto the YouTube um, and, or the, uh, the Spotify has got the video. You may want to come back and watch this one because Dan's got a whole bunch of very, he's got the backdrop of a bunch of the, of his favorite jackets behind him. He's got, he's got the Foo Fighters t-shirt. We're going to get into all of that, but yeah, we're, uh, we're showing the, uh, the late show, 
customized uh, Letterman pencil with two erasers. Uh, a lot of folks have asked me, uh, you know, are they available? Can I get more? Can I go to hello-deli.com and get them? No, you can get the mugs. You can get the shirts from hello-deli.com, but you can't get that pencil. Uh, one day I'm going to find out the origin there. Yeah, Dan's got the mug right there. Um, this is really cool. So Dan, before we get to, you know, some of the anecdotes and stories and, 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 and just shooting the bull a little bit about late show, let's talk about you um, you've been a cameraman for CBS for a long time. How did you get into the business? Uh, where did you start? And, and, and I mean, you've gotten to the highest level of broadcasting, being a camera person in broadcasting in, in, in so many respects, where did it start? And, uh, and where are you at now? Basically it started with my father, my father and my grandfather, my grandfather worked for WDAF TV in Kansas city. My father uh, first went into the army in the 1950s and, and it wasn't, it was, he didn't get sent to Korea, but he got switched to New York city from Kansas city to what was called the army pictorial center. And which is now the Kaufman Astoria studios in, in Queens. Yeah. And at the army pictorial center, they made army training films. It was, he said it was a gigantic cavernous room and they would, would make army trick army training films there. And when his two year stint in the army was up, you know, because he already knew electronics and TV and stuff. He applied for a job at uh, both N CBS and NBC. And at the time, he first got hired at NBC and lasted for like two years. And then NBC had a big layoff. Yeah. And then he was lucky enough. I guess he said they just got married and had their first child. And then he got laid off. This was like 1959 or so. And he got hired. At CBS. So he worked for the RCA building. In 1959. Yes. Wow. My mother was a secretary at NBC. And the two of them met at NBC. They get married. She quits her job to just be a stay-at-home mom. And he gets laid off. And then within, he knew people at CBS in the engineering department. He gets hired there. So he's an engineer. And he is at one point the chief engineer, later on a vice president of engineering technology and whatever. Yep. So, of course... You know, he said, when I was going away to college, he said, you know, we've got five kids going, going away to private school. We could use some help paying for tuition. I hope you get a job, but then you've got to use some of your paycheck to help kick in some tuition money. I right. said, okay, that sounds right. fair. So I got, he got me a job at WPIX. He actually wasn't allowed to get me a job at CBS at the time. There was some family nepotism thing, which turns out is not true because a lot of people get hired because they knew somebody. So I'm yeah. working at WPIX during the summer, three or four months. And uh, which picks was great because I, at a small station, you do everything. Yep. You do videotape one day, you do camera one day, you roll the teleprompter one day, and then you even do master control. And I'm, I was like 21 years old working, working the master control switcher and, and running you know, the station. The best part of it was WPIX at the time had the contract with the New York Yankees. They covered all Yankee home games oh my god and, and a lot of the people that worked there the old timers they didn't want to go up to yankee stadium it was a bother they just wanted to come into the station so i said i'll do yankee stadium next thing you know i'm up there and i'm covering every yankee home game you know for during the summer and then when i graduated in 82 picks of course hired they had made overtures the year, summer before you know when you graduate come on and we'll hire you so they immediately hired me 82 i did every yankee home game for about four years so somewhere around, it was around the end of 85, I started looking for, for other work. I, I kind of gotten bored there. I'd done everything I could do, but I'd done like news ENG on the streets with a handheld camera. 
Yeah. And that that was sort of exciting work, but a little dangerous too at the same time. You know, even before the era of fake news, you could still be a target being the guy holding a camera on the street. But uh, okay, but so, doing- so I gotta stop. You. I, I gotta stop you here and ask you about this because. Uh, now, now tell me that this isn't an ironic story. You're not a Mets fan, right? You're a Yankees fan. Like this is one of those things where you know uh, somebody sort gets of, to get thrown into something they love. I sort of believe it or not, I root for both teams. I have no prejudice <laughs> against either team. The only time you have to pick sides it would be if they faced each other in the World Series, like they did in I think 2000, and then yeah. I went with the Yankees, and, uh, and the, so. I would lean towards the Yankees, but I, people come up with me with tickets to a Mets game. And it's like, yeah, I'll go, I'll go watch the Mets. And my <laughs> wife is a Phillies fan. I married a Philadelphia woman. So whenever the Phillies come in, she wants to go to Shea Stadium or Shea Stadium. They tore Shea Stadium down about a decade ago and made yeah. a city field, but I still call it Shea Stadium. I, we go see a Mets Phillies game or whatever. And, you know, uh, so I, I go to games all the time, but uh, or often enough. I love talking go. to um, I, I love talking to the 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 tech guys, um, and it's funny because you know we we're, we're going to get to Letterman, of course, and and uh, I found that uh, a lot of the early adopters of this show here, in particular, uh, are folks who have been in the television business for a long time, and folks who have been in the tech side of the television business for a long time, and and this um, it's so charming. Like I've done I've done some local. Uh, I guess that you know, uh, for for lack of a better term, cable access stuff over the years, and 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 it's really cool um, seeing some of the camera operators or some of the switchers or people who are in the in the in the in the control room, and how there is this element of being a Jack or a Jane of all trades uh, at, at that level, and and then people just seem to sort of elevate where you might get to a control room where there are more. Uh, monitors and more things to switch to and a few more little uh, doodads and, and and things that you can do or, or more cameras in the studio itself. But really at the end of the day, if you've been in one, it kind of translates to almost any other, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. You learn, you learn to pick things up quickly. You learn to not get, let the stress get to you. Yeah. You know, in the beginning, you'd be like, I'm holding a camera and there could be several million people watching uh, don't get nervous and make a mistake. Cause if you get really nervous, then you got to make mistakes, yes. you know, with switching on air. I mean, and anything that, anything like that can cause stress and, and you have to learn to like, like let get, get past worrying about what, who's watching or whatever, and just, just shoot and, uh, yeah, become the jack of all trades. Sort of. And, and I was, I, I liked it. I liked doing the switcher too. Like Tim Kennedy was the switcher. Yep. And when I was at WPIX, I did the switching too, but we had two rows of buttons and then two rows uh, a little buttons and there were maybe 35 buttons on this board yep. to switch. Yep. The most complicated thing we did was a chroma key where the weatherman would stand in front of a green screen and do that. And I come to see CBS and Tim is like, hey, but you know, instead of being a camera, it could also be a TV. And I look at this thing and it had, had to be 150 buttons and about eight or nine rows and all these special effect banks. And I was so, I actually tried to like learn and I was so overwhelmed by the thing. I said, I think I'll stick to pointing a camera now. Because the network, the networks kind of want people to specialize in one thing. It was more compartmentalized. You're a TV, you work the switcher. You're a cameraman, you do the camera. You work in videotape and, and that was it. As opposed to pics where you did a little of everything. 
So, yeah, and I, I, this is something I wanted to get into here actually today a little bit because um, I think that the average uh, uh, viewer or person who, who who wants to know a little bit more about the behind the scenes doesn't understand also like the unions as well. Like, I mean, you know, you're at these local community stations um, and, and, and I mean, you know, at any level, whatever level that is, you could become a Jack or a Jane of all trades, but, um, and, and learn these different things. But once you get up to the higher level, that you're talking about here, we're talking different unions as well, right? Like you're, 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 you're allowed to do certain things. You're not allowed to do certain things. When did uh union life and, 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 and if you could maybe shed some light a little bit on how that works, when did that enter your career? Well, as soon as I started at WPIX, I had to join a union. Yep. Uh, most of television is heavily unionized technicians or yep. IDW stage hands of the IAI OTSI, even the hair, makeup, wardrobe people, so many people, directors are part of the Directors Guild, producers can be the Producers Guild. Everything is is very, uh, you know, I mean, I had, you know, I had a couple of friends who, who I went to college with, they looked at me like, you're in a union? Like, what's wrong with you? I mean, they sort of looked down their noses at, you know, they're the ones who all went to management jobs someplace, and they're probably making a lot more than me, but, you know, it's funny, but ironic, when I get together with my friends for a, a Sunday afternoon barbecue, they're working these high-end jobs. One guy's in banking, one guy's in brokerage. One guy owns like an $800,000 house in, in Manhasset. And and, we're, and and we get together and, and they travel around the world doing mm -hmm. stuff. And one guy was in Indonesia, one guy was in South of Sao Paulo, Brazil. And I'm saying, tell me about your, your travels. Tell me about your travels. Tell me about this. And they're like, my, my job is boring. Tell me about TV. Who have you seen lately? <laughs> You know, what shows have you done lately? And like, well, I worked with this actor, I worked with that actor. And that's all they, they, they think it's the coolest thing in the world that you get to work with actors and you get to you get to do all this stuff. And I think, you know what, you're right. It is kind of cool. I, I, I you know, it, the grass always seems greener on the other side than some of these other, other jobs. But union unions do a good thing in terms of protecting workers. They sometimes then can hold them back from moving on to the next thing. You know, I, I know a lot of cameramen, including myself, that would like to somehow direct. Yes. But I, you know, it's it's like a totally different, it's a different universe. And it, they said, you, you know, years ago when you got hired, you should have come in as a production assistant and then become an associate director and then a director. That was the vertical path to being a director. Uh, Jerry Foley managed to do. Uh, he jumped sideways from being yeah. a technical director and it, for him, it was a good move. It was a great move. And it was, it was a move that we all expected because as good as Hal Gurney was, I only worked with him a handful of times yeah. when he came. Yeah. And because uh, I didn't get on the show first, I was out in the field doing sports when, when the show came. Yeah. So I filled in one or two days and a couple of times Hal would make a mistake. He would call the wrong camera and Jerry would take the correct camera. And you hear Hal say, oh, thanks, Jerry. You know, ready to take take three. Oh, oh, thanks, Jerry. Like Jerry would save him by doing the right thing. So Jerry was practically directing as he was teed in. Yep. And, and then, so when Hal retired, it's like, okay, it's, it's definitely Jerry going to move over to be the director. And we were all happy for him. This is uh, something I, 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 I would love to have Jerry on the show and, 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 and talk about that. Um, he and I have had a few, a handful of conversations and, and, uh, he's not, um, he's not coming on here anytime soon, but it's not that it's going to be a no, it's just a not yet kind of a thing. This is something that's fascinating to me, uh, because, uh, you know, one of the things about Dave, um, 
and 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 his history that is fascinating, I think, is his link to avant-garde, brand new kids, uh, you know, inmates running the asylum, connected to showbiz history and 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 uh showbiz royalty in many respects and meshing them together from the beginning of his career moving forward. Hal Gurney, of course, being the latter, uh, you know, worked for par. Um, you know, innovated in many ways that somebody in the control room could be a character on the show. The control room itself could be a character on the show. And um, and when he retired, I mean, the, the big shift that happened uh, at CBS in around the 96, 97 uh, time period, including, of course, Hal moving over. Um, I, I, I want to talk to Jerry and people around in there about that particular time. Because it isn't just a matter of I'm sitting beside the guy and uh, the guy retires. And so I'm just going to move over. There's more, if you, for lack of a better term, politics when it comes to that. And, uh, you know, we had just had Amy Sharon Humes on and, and you know, she was Jerry's assistant. Uh, she talked about that, how she wanted to be a stage manager and the hoops that she had to jump through to be able, she volunteered at three in the morning at CBS more, morning news. <laughs> so she could actually get the credentials, the union credentials, uh, to, to to become a stage manager at the same mm -hmm. time um there, there there's a lot of waters that you have to negotiate if you want to even make lateral moves in the television business aren't there there really are and i found personally if you're willing to accept you know like she had to accept the three in the morning job if you're willing to accept the undesirable jobs there's maybe more opportunities it was like me at picks during master control they said if you want to work 11 p.m. to 7 a.m., the overnight shift, which nobody wanted, you could like do the top job of running the station. And, yeah. and there I am at age 21 pushing the buttons like, oh, my God, if I make a mistake, the station could be off the air. But nobody nobody's watching because it's three in the morning anyway. So, yeah, the the some of those things can be done if you're willing to take a chance or if you get lucky or if you happen, you know, get in the right with the right people, you can uh you know, make that, make that jump over, uh, with, with, you know, with my case, I'm not quite sure how I did it, but because I had a father there when I, when I said, okay, it's time to move from PICS to CBS. I put in the job application. I had an interview. I had a feeling like, okay, it's probably a foregone conclusion that I'm going to get the job anyway. Yep. But, uh, I, I, I sometimes joke with people like, well, you know, you didn't think I got this job because I had any talent, did you? I, I knew somebody. And, and at first I felt guilty and I get to CBS and I find all these young cameramen whose fathers were older cameramen or older uh, technicians. And like, okay, there's so many nepotism cases here. It's it's okay. You know, I'm just one of many people and we don't judge each other that way. You know, it's funny about that, man. Like, uh, like it, it, the word nepotism, and I, and I don't get me wrong. I understand that, that at, in many environments, uh, oh yeah, there's the there's the president's kid who's been given this high level position, that kind of thing. I understand the the concept, but I also understand the concept of of friends of mine who are a third generation firefighter or a third generation uh, police officer or 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 military for that matter. As we record this, it's just past uh, you know November 11th. Lest me forget, we thank all those who serve. Um, I think you know locally, uh, I can I can list three people off the top of my head. Um, who are broadcasters of some sort, whether it's in front of the camera or the microphone or behind it on the tech side of things, where they can 
uh, talk about their father or their grandfather or their mother or their grandmother who who, who have a, a root in it. Television, I find, or broadcasting, I find, is a family business the same way that for many folks, firefighting is and whatnot. And I think it is because of the the crazy hours, the unique part of the job. Um, you know, when when and it is a cool thing. Like when you see a parent in a broadcast studio of some sort growing up, that makes it an incredible impression, I think. And and uh, I, I assume, you know, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but your grandfather, your father, I assume you kind of looked up to them and what they did and said, oh, this is pretty darn cool. Yes, I did. You know, uh, we saw that we saw the downsides of it being a kid where my father was away a lot. He traveled yeah. on purpose. So and then and then he, you know, he he, he was actually a, more of an executive. So he worked more daytime hours. I had to travel a lot. And so I get in the field and my first job in, TV, in CBS, I said I wanted to go out and do sports. Yes, I was a sports guy. Yep. And so now now I'm flying out of town every Friday doing a football game or a basketball game or whatever and then flying home on monday a lot of times i say this is okay now i understand you the job you can't do it monday to friday nine to five it's the job demands you work weekends and you fly to where this game is and and you do it there so that's that's what you have to do and at the time uh when i first got hired i was a bachelor and that was great i was mm -hmm. traveling on the road I, I didn't have anyone to answer to or any pets to take care of I could just get up and go when, when yep. I wanted to, and you get and you get to see the country. I get to see just about every major city that had a sporting event, and uh, and where some guys would rush home Monday morning or try to get that last flight out Sunday night, I might stay a whole extra day in the city and just uh, uh, bum around and, and drive around and say, "Hey, this is great! I can now see a city and then fly home and do it all in the company time." And uh, I enjoyed the, the years I traveled and did sports. Uh, I, I even got to travel some international CBS at the Olympics in 92 yep. in France, 94 in Lillehammer, Norway and 98 yep. in Nagano and 92, 94. I did figure skating. I was in with a great director named Bob Fishman. He did figure skating and which was a great sport to cover. In fact, that's one of my claims to fame is 1994 when Nancy Kerrigan and Tanya Harding were skating. Yep. Because my camera was on the red line right at the boards. So, and and they had two cameras, one on that side and one on this side. It was like the reverse angle. So on most of those shots that you see on the old newsreel footage, you see Nancy Kerrigan spinning right behind her. There's a camera lens and you could see the top of the head, you know, over the viewfinder. And that's, yep. that's me. And I'm, I'm in all these shot, famous shots. And they said Shown that over and over and over and over and, and over and again as they analyze things, right? Yeah, we knew it was going to be big. And yep. afterwards, it was like 80 million people or something. That was probably the most watched that anything I ever did. And that was one night I actually felt slightly nervous doing camera like you don't want to don't want to screw up tonight. You know, the, the adrenaline's flowing like it's got to be perfect. The shots have to be right. Don't go out of focus. It's and and, you know, we nailed it. We had great coverage. The, the lace broke and it was all drama. And uh, we, we thought, oh, this is fantastic. So that was that was one of my uh, my big moments was being yeah. there. And, and which is what I love about being a cameraman is you get to be in the room when famous things happen. Yep. You, know, you can be at presidential inaugurations. You can be at presidential debates. You can be right there where, where something big is happening. And you're not really a power player participating in it, but you're there and you get to be in the room and be witness to some bits of history happening. And, you know, for some sports history, and I covered Masters 
golf tournaments and, you know, a lot of some Super Bowls and some big events. And after a while, it's after a while, you start to take it for granted. Like, oh, it's just another game, you know, <laughs> but but it's a Super Bowl. Yeah, but it's, it's just another game, but it's a Super Bowl. So I loved it, though. I loved the field. And um, and then around 93, uh, Dave came and I was yep. still doing because covering baseball at the time. We had a contract from 90 to 93 for covering baseball. Yep. And that's 93, the Philadelphia Phillies were in it. And in the playoffs, the trucker were years. Well, they all look like greasy big truckers. Yes. Wild <laughs> thing. They're, they're, they're relief pitcher at the time with the long hair. And he had to, he had to look like the wild thing. And my camera was the center field camera. Um, the center field camera would shoot the pitch and over the pitcher's shoulder. And my wife, future wife, was sitting there in the bleachers, uh, you know, behind me with a big sign said, Scalp the Braves or whatever. And, <laughs> And oh, my God. oh yeah very politically correct these days and i looked back and, and her mother was sitting next to her saying that camera keeps turning and looking at you and after the game i was like saying uh you know she looked at me i said are you coming back tomorrow because i know that the seats were sold as as blocks like you right you buy the same seat for three nights in a row or whatever and she said yeah so the next night she was back and this time with her father and, and i kept looking over at her between innings and at the end of the game, I rushed over and I got her phone number and, and we talked for a minute. And then I had to fly out to Atlanta for more playoffs and then back to Philadelphia. And I took her out to dinner one and one night. And then the Phillies made the World Series and it was against Toronto. So I was back and forth from Philly to Toronto. That's where we started a long distance. Well, not really long distance, but about two hour drive relationship from yep. New York to Philadelphia. And eventually I got married. And around the time I got married, I... I realized a lot of the roadies, uh, not to knock any of them, but uh, several of them were divorced and there was a fair amount of drinking going on the road. And, and it's like, it's, it's a hard life to be married and have a family and say, I got to be away every weekend when my kids are having soccer games and whatever else. I didn't want that. So I went to CBS and said, okay, I'd like to get off the road now. And they had no problem with that because it's actually cheaper now, much less expensive than the higher a local freelancer. They save airfare, hotel, rental car, everything else, just hire a guy locally. So they said, okay, no problem. Come on back. We've got soap operas going on. I did that some as the world turns. And Letterman, unfortunately, they had already gotten their crew. Yep. You know, in 93, when they first came, they got they got crew. But then things were changing. Well, the cameraman mobbed off. And I said, okay, okay. It, was, it surprised us. I thought this must be the Nirvana job, but he got a job, you know, some doing something else or hours that he wanted more. And, 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 you know, next thing, you know, they said, well, instead of replacing <clears throat> the one cameraman with one guy, we'd like to have a rotation going. So okay. we'll get four and you do Monday, you do Tuesday, you do Wednesday, you do Thursday. That way there's four guys that are <clears throat> involved with the show off enough that they know the flow of the show. They get the direct, you know, they know what the director, how he's, how he's, speaks and how he talks and what he means when he says this and they're in the flow of it so it was you know got him john and al and another john and uh, fred and me yep. and we were all like the, the guys who rotated through so officially i was there one day a week but in in practice i was there two and even three days because anytime they did something out on 53rd street they would add at least one or two additional cameramen right say come on over and and I'd be doing something else. Sometimes I was doing the soap opera 
and you know three o'clock in the afternoon it's like you come over and like the soap is going to be done about four i'll rush over and then and then do it or a couple times it, I, I practically left in the middle i shouldn't have even left but i left one one show it's like oh you guys are fine you'll be you'll be fine without me you're almost finished i'm leaving i'm running over there and you know i get there sometimes around about five o'clock or five fifteen they have a camera meeting and we'd all go into the control room jerry foley say okay this is going to happen this is going to happen this is going to happen and then we go and i run out and get my camera and then you know whatever would happen and and that the beauty of the show what i loved is that on any given day you had no idea what was going to happen yes it could be a, a a slow day where he just interviews guests or it could be you walk you come in and you find police barricades on 53rd street and there's a motorcycle jump set up yep. and looking for, wow what's going on there's going to be a motorcycle jump a guy named indian larry was the big motorcycle uh jumper that came in several times and we got to meet him and uh you know whenever the the ringling brothers circus showed up and they had a big he, he dave loved the circus and they had a big setup they had a huge cage in the shape of a sphere and they had motorcycle guys going around and, and they yeah. said this is the first time we you know we set a guinness world record by having more motorcyclists than a cage than ever before and there's guys doing circles around the cage crisscrossing each other and no one hit each other i thought oh and then <laughs> other stunts with knives spinning around and I'm thinking, wow, I hope those things aren't sharp because I'm standing just a few feet away from them for the camera. <laughs> but uh, every once in a while, you, you feel like, yeah, I'm, I'm the only guy close to something crazy going on, but but pretty sure I won't get injured. So I'll just, I'll just, you know, go with it. I, uh, there are so many, um, you know, I, I, I loved what you just did and, and the, the, you just, you set the perfect stage. Uh, before we get to straight up the Letterman stuff and some of the stories and anecdotes and whatnot, by the way, shout out to Bill Palumbo. I just love Bill Palumbo. He's one of the guys that helped build a lot of the things that you're talking about there and and, and Tom Balsevich and, and all those guys, uh, Larkin and, and that crew that built all the things on 53rd Street. Um, and like you said, it was just it was just a unique time in television. They don't do it as much on Colbert. It's a different show. Uh, that was such a special thing that you got to be a part of. And the fact that you weren't a regular studio guy uh or in studio uh cameramen um you know other than the one day a week it, the fact that you got to see some of these things it almost gave you the advantage of seeing some of these amazing uh you know once in a lifetime events that would happen outside uh i just a couple technical questions you're the center field camera uh for the philly game does that mean you're going to be the center field camera guy for the toronto game was it always the same position or did you not yes. know where you were going to be each each game no the, the sports people want you in the same position okay so it'd be like the high left the high home or high first base third base same field. that way you could you you know specialize and do just get good at your one camera and do gotcha that. i i've enjoyed moving around you know i, I occasionally the, this guy would be out of that guy would be out and then you know, you, you move around, you do a different camera, which I, I always enjoyed moving around and doing different things. Yep. I guess that's why I, I, I didn't, you know, a lot of times shows would have an opening. Like, do you want to do the soap opera five days a week? Yep. Do you want to do this show five days a week? And I always say no. Say, I want to be the guy who bounces around and fills in. Put me a week on Morning News to fill in for that guy. And a week over here and a couple of days over there and a day here and a day there. Yep. And at one point it would be like, I was doing CBS Sunday morning with Charles Osgood, which was a fantastic show to work on. So Sunday I was doing that. Monday I did the soap opera. Tuesday I was doing Letterman. 
Wednesday I was doing something else. And, and so every day of the week was a different show. And I was bouncing around from show to show. And it gave my life a lot of variety. And I, I really enjoyed the variety. Oh, that's very cool. Okay, so, um, and it seems like all of the... Uh... All of the things that you were doing, the varied jobs, uh, varied locations, that kind of thing, was kind of preparing you for what the circus itself, that Late Show with David Letterman, was, and that you could be this multi-talented uh, player. Um, I want to go back before we talk about uh, you guys getting Letterman, because I want to set the table a little bit. You're working for CBS. At this point, a journeyman, just simply for the for the experiences that you've had, even though you're relatively young still. You graduated in 82 uh, Letterman, of course, came over in 93, as you alluded to. Um, was the majority of what you were doing, like the soap operas, for example, once you got off the road, were you in the broadcast center uh, a, a great majority of the time? Is that where the soap operas were shot? Obviously, yeah. that's where the news was. Yes, that um, was is that where you did most of your most of your work at that point? Yes, most of my work was at West 57th Street and 10th Avenue, the soap operas. We had uh, the studios are six large studios upstairs. Yep. A couple of news studios downstairs. So Dan Rather was downstairs on the first floor. The 60-minute studios on the first floor. Yep. Upstairs, six large studios. Two of them were a soap opera. And then, you know, Geraldo, we had Geraldo Rivera doing his show in one studio. And <laughs> talk about circus. That was a crazy circus. Did and, you ever shoot uh, any of those? I shot a few episodes of Geraldo. Yeah, that was that was great. And, and Geraldo... Again, you, 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 the guests, I mean, the subject material was a bit crazy. Maybe sleazy was, was a better word for it, some of the guests they got in there. But uh, Geraldo was very good. He would come in. He, he was one of those guys didn't really need to rehearse the prompter. He would just look at it, boom, 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 and read and, and, knock, it off, and knock it right through. And he was fast enough. He could react to, you know, he knew how to interview people. And he, he could keep the show from getting too out of control. Yeah, you know, you want a certain amount of controlled chaos, and Geraldo was controlled chaos. I guess that's kind of how the Late Show was. It's, uh, it's, it's that you want it to be a little chaotic, so it's fun, but you don't want it to get totally out of control. Um, there's so a guy, a yeah. Ab absolutely. Mm -hmm. That that's a guy who, um, you know, when you think about it, uh, a multi-talented individual because he could go from you know, a, a serious regarded as a serious broadcaster all the way to, if you, there's a prelude for, for, for Jerry Springer and the antics of that show. I think Geraldo would probably be the, uh, the, yeah, the, the father, the grandfather of that. Um, and then become serious again. And, and, and there's a, there's a guy who's talented, uh, in, 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 in many, many respects and probably is overlooked because of some of the things you're talking about, but really, um, yeah, that is a, that's a very interesting, uh, part of the resume that would prepare you for Letterman as well. I'm glad we went down that path a little bit. Now you're working for CBS, a journeyman at that point, and then suddenly the the the, the late shift uh, starts to go into motion over at NBC. Uh, you're a union guy. You hang out with all the sorts of people that 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 uh, moonlight for different places and whatnot. I want to mm -hmm. ask you about the scuttlebutt of knowing that Dave is not going to stay with NBC. Uh, not sure where he's going to go. That kind of a thing. I assume you all were talking about that. And when the announcement that he was coming over to CBS uh, happened, there must've been a tremendous amount of excitement at that point with you and your counterparts. Oh, yes. There was a huge thrill in the air. Yeah. And we, we kind of know, I mean, we kind of knew ahead of time because as you know, from, from having seen the late shift, NBC had that choice. They had two guys and only one job. 
Yep. So whichever one doesn't get the job, Dave or Jay are going to probably want to leave. Yep. So it's like, fine, we're going to get one of them. We're going to find, we had Pat Sajak on the air as our show. And I think did, they, you never worked that show, did you? What? You never no, worked that, that show, that, did you? That was uh, West Coast. Yeah, it was West Coast. Okay. That's Pat Sajak was West Coast. And uh, there was a funny line in the movie, The Late Shift. And whoever was playing Howard Stringer was said something like, oh, I'd push Sajak off a cliff if I could get Dave. <laughs> and I thought, oh, God, poor Pat. You know, he's he, he's He did okay. Pat, Pat did okay. He did okay for himself. He, he's, his life was good. So, but they wanted to get one of one of those, you know, Dave or Dave or Jay or whoever they could get. And then when, when it was announced, Dave's coming over. I'm like, oh, you know, this is, this is great. And then they announced they were buying, re, repurchasing the Ed Sullivan Theater. And I thought, this is, this is great. It's a historic landmark theater mm -hmm. that we did the Ed Sullivan show. When I first got hired, it was great because eight, back in the 80s, the original generation of guys who started in the 1950s were still there. They were getting older. They were retiring one by one. But I, I worked with a cameraman, or one or two guys that were there when the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan. Oh my like God! There, and and so I got to talk to them. I knew the makeup artist who got called over to make up the Beatles, and like, oh my God, you know, uh, we're there at the history. And one guy loved Jackie Gleason. He did all the Jackie Gleason shows there at the theater, and he said, "Yeah, we would rehearse. They they rehearse the whole show. Then the crew would take lunch, and we'd go out to the bar. Yep. And Jackie would go out, and then buy us all a couple beers." And then we all go, I think every one of them had a little buzz on when they did, <laughs> when they did the Gleason show. I thought, oh, this is great. Hearing the, old, the stories from the old timers were, were just so much fun. And, and so we, I was happy they were purchasing the Ed Sullivan Theater. They had to renovate it. There was like that three or four months of, of you know, crazy renovation. And Did you, you know, go see it? it? Did you see it in the condition it was before? Like and then and then see what they no, turned it I, into. I, like I didn't get to see it. I didn't get to, to okay. go there, and I was still traveling and doing sports. Right, right, I, right. I probably wasn't. I, I I probably could have walked in there, but I I didn't want to go someplace where I wasn't really authorized to go. But I heard. I mean, there was all kinds of stories. Like they they were the painters are down painting, but meanwhile the guys are are drilling through holes in the concrete. So now concrete dust is coming down, getting on the paint. So the guys are having the Wipe the wipe the dust off and then repaint them. Everyone's getting in each other's way, yep. but it all came together, and it was just about three or four months that all came together, and the theater's ready to go. And uh, you know, I, I, it was it was amazing the way that they they put all this. You know, they put like a ceiling of baffling down. They said it was more for sound baffling than anything yep. else. And I mean, and when Colbert renovated it and brought his vision to light. They literally just got rid of all that. And they opened it wide up and they, this beautiful ceiling with stained glass windows. And I thought, this is fantastic. And apparently the audio didn't really suffer from not having all the sound baffling. It sounds fine. So I thought this is, I love, I love the way Colbert redid the theater. It's just so, it's beautiful. The other way it was more like, well, Dave did it more like a practical, it was like more like a practical stage for a, sh a TV show as opposed yes. to theater. So I, I get there and I'm, I'm working. And in the beginning, it was is tough because everyone, you know, the, the show had already been there for a year and a half or so. And everyone knew the play, their place and everyone was into the flow of things. And I'm like the new guy going, oh, my God, I'm trying to get 
quickly get get into the flow of this thing. And I think Carly Simon was there. Oh. And and instead of and and it was a little bit different. Most of the time, the the artist Carly would stand center stage. Yep. And they would shoot her with the pedestal cameras. This time, they wanted her to stand right in front of Paul Schaefer's uh, music setup on the edge of the stage, and they would shoot it with a handheld camera in the aisle. So now I'm on a handheld camera in the aisle, and I'm about six, seven, eight feet in front of Carly Simon holding it. And my camera was like the main shot of Carly. So they would cut around to the other the shots of Paul and the musicians, and they cut back to me, and I'm like holding it as still as I possibly can. Mm -hmm. I think, wow, this is, you know, and I thought how Gurney must have a lot of faith in the new guy. If you're going to say, okay, you're brand new. I've never worked with you. You're going to go, you're going to have the main shot now for, for music. And, uh, you know, it, it does, put, when, when, when the director shows faith in you, it, it, it suddenly can resonate like, oh, oh, this is good. This is good. Now, if he has faith in me, I've got faith in myself. So for anybody who's got insecurities, you can say, yeah, I, I'm, I'm liking this. Isn't that funny, though, how um, you are the guy who, uh, you know, Nancy Kerrigan in the Olympics. And for those who are, you know, I'm 47 at the time of this uh, at the time of this recording that there was no bigger story in in in, in sports slash and entertainment at that point there. And you're the guy that shoots, uh, you know, that huge, huge moment, the, the World Series. I mean, you think about that. You're the guy that shoots that. Um, all of these things, uh, you know, bits and pieces that build into this massive, um, you know, body of experience that you have to go to this show and, and, and see Carly Simon. Yeah, of course, of course you can do that from a technical standpoint, but at the same time, you're, you're a journeyman that has been at the biggest level. Um, and still you can be present in that moment and realize, oh, Hal Gurney's, you know, counting on me for that. And you can make it terribly exciting as opposed to just another day at the office. I find that very, very cool that even at that point, with all that experience under your belt, that moment is one that comes to you and and you still had excitement for it. And it seems like you haven't lost it. You really still enjoy what you do. Hey, Dan? Oh, I do. I really do. I enjoy doing different things. And I don't mind getting thrown into bizarre new situations. And, and it, it's always a lot of fun, you know, being being where something big is happening, even if it's a minor show, even if it's like, oh, I filled in last week on Drew Barrymore. It's just a morning talk show, but you know, it's new, it's different, it's something else. And, uh, you know, filling in on Colbert when when one of the regular guys is out, that's always a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, the, 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 I love the variety of, of the TV business. It's, it's, I don't go out and do sports anymore. I, I, although a few times they called me and said, you want to go out to MetLife Stadium and do a, a Jets game? And I said, sure, because a few of the directors out there still know me from 30 years ago. So I go out and I said, oh, I almost got bit by the bug. I said, maybe I'll come back out on, this, on, the, sport, on the road and do sports. But then by the end of the day, I was like, yeah, do I really want to go out at my age <laughs> and, and travel do lifting heavy cameras up onto the truck and do you know so much of uh, sports work? You're only a cameraman for like three hours. All yeah. the rest of it, you're loading yeah. a truck full of equipment. You're running cables into a building. Yeah. You're, you're you're doing all the grunt work, and then you're a cameraman for three hours, and then you're breaking everything back down again, and packing it all back up in the truck, and the truck has to leave to go to the next uh, event. So it's it's physically a lot of heavy physical labor. I mean, when I did it back then, I was in much better shape. Yes, from all the labor. you didn't even have to go to the gym. You're lifting stuff. You're moving heavy stuff. I've gotten a little little soft with age, and uh, I, 
I wouldn't want to go back out there again full time, but I didn't mind filling in for a week here and a week there out of it. MetLife Stadium for a game. It was a lot of fun. Shout out to Randy Gross who talked about the uh, NFL. That's what she's be. Uh, she's she's deep into the uh, football season right now. Um, okay, so so you go. I want to go back to um, that early time when you started with uh, with Late Show, the Carly Simon moment. Are there any other moments that kind of uh, resonate up to the surface? I know we've had a, a, a week or so to kind of think about uh, doing this 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 show here. Let's talk early on. Some of the moments that you remember uh, starting for this thing and 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 continuing to revitalize your passion for this because of the randomness. What were some of the moments early on that you uh, experienced that that come to mind? Early on, you know, I'm trying to remember things. I, I remember when we get big name acts like big name bands. That's that's always a lot of fun. Yeah. And, you know, at one point, um, not, not early on so much. I mean, when they first and that told me you could work here as a regular basis, one day a week. And you'll be, at first I was the Wednesday guy, now it's the Tuesday guy or whatever. Same camera so, every week? Yeah, they, they were basically three pedestal cameras yep. that shot Dave and the desk and, yep. and the guest, and then two handhelds. And one handheld played the right side of the stage, the left side of the stage over by Paul Schaefer. The other played the right side of the stage and you could, there were, the producer was always at a podium on, yep. the, on the side of the stage. It was Alan Coulter yep. and, producer at a little podium and the blue doors and every once in a while they'd have something come out the blue doors or if you had to shoot alan Coulter, that would be my camera and then you know later on i became i moved over to the other side of the stage we had another guy left and and there was one guy cameraman named joe and joe was like he came had come over from nbc and i admired the guy very much because he could sort of read dave's mind he sort of knew ahead of time where Dave was about to go and, and anticipate and, and be there two seconds before everyone else had to react and be there. I thought, oh, this guy, is, mm -hmm. this guy is just too good. And, you know, and then, and then, you know, so the personnel changed uh, every once in a while. And I, then I'm on the other side of the stage covering Paul Schaefer. So, uh, you know, the, there was a lot of things you'd have to quickly react to because Dave didn't, he liked to go off script a lot. And yes. if we had rehearsed, then something else could happen. And I, I really love the things I love the most is when they went on 53rd Street and did something weird. Uh, John McEnroe was on as a guest one day. Well, they using white tape, they actually made an entire tennis court out there on 53rd Street and put a net out there and everything. So it's like Dave said, you know, John, let's go play some tennis. And they go out there and they're hitting the tennis ball back and forth to each other. And I'm like, okay, they're, they're playing tennis on 53rd Street. And uh, we had other things. We had baseball players come on. It's like, hey, let's do batting practice on 53rd. Throwing baseballs and the guys are hitting. And I'm thinking, oh, we're, they're going to smash a window someplace. And I think I think we did break one or two. Or, or I think, you know, the, a windshield's going to get smashed on a car someplace. And they didn't care. They, they've almost had that... Um, sort of like, you know how a teenage boy would be like, yeah, I'm going to try something crazy and I don't care if it, something gets broken. He almost had that. Mischievousness. The cheat mischievousness of like an adolescent boy. He, he, he kept that mischievousness all through his life and, and he enjoyed doing little tricks. I remember one thing early on, behind Dave, behind the desk, was a little uh, trolley. And I didn't realize Dave had a switch that the trolley could actually slide back and forth. 
So I'm, I'm there with my camera and I'm, I'm back. For some reason, I had to be backstage and I'm shooting the trolley. And, uh, and there was like a bunch of little, like little people, whatever. And, 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 and I'm shooting the trolley. I'm, sh I'm just seeing what I can do with this camera. It almost looks like, I'm, you know, I've got the lens right close. And suddenly the trolley moves and runs the guy over. And I jumped like, oh my God, <laughs> the trolley just ran over a little, a little, little, you know, statue of a guy. And what the hell's going on? What did I do? And I turn around at the desk and there's Dave looking at me and he's got his hands on me. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, oh, you did that. Okay. And, and uh, you know, Dave, would, he, he just saw an opportunity to do, do something funny, mess with a guy. And, and he did. And, uh, you know, they said, oh, Dave, but Dave must like you. He messed with you a little bit. Well, and, and, and the thing that I love about that too, um, I love talking to Dave's like old friends from back in the day. We've actually got one uh, from the comedy store days. That's, that's going to be coming on um, fairly soon here. I'm very excited about it. Uh, it's a little bit of a tease for the audience, um, but uh, you know, Dave talking about his days at the comedy store is one of the only bits of nostalgia that I think he, he, he really has. There's another one though. And that, I think, is the fact that he spent so much time as a tech guy, as he made his way up. You know, you talk about the idea of, 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 of running the studio late at night, and you can be the station manager, essentially, with all the, the, the jack-of-all-trades. Dave did that. He, he did that back in the day. Um, mm -hmm. You know, be the guy that turns on the national anthem at the end of the day and, 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 and horse it around with the guys in the studio. And mm -hmm. that translated, in my opinion, that translated his entire career right up to the very, very end of Late Show, uh, where where Dave would love to horse around with the with with the crew, and and yeah. and because he was there, he was one of them. I don't know if he was necessarily a cameraman, but you know, he's talked about being an audio engineer and some of these other different things, booth announcer. Uh, you know, it, and 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 the the fact that he was so comfortable with you know, the tech side and the tech crew and all of that. And he liked to horse around with, with the crew. Um, is that something that was, would you, would you agree with that? Is that a spirit that was part of the show uh, throughout your run there? That that was a spirit, at least in the beginning, because Dave would come down for rehearsals. Right. And he would do, and then he would do stuff. He, him and Bill Sheffield would start throwing a football back and forth. Yep. With each other. And, and if the football hit a light, It'd be like electric, you know, we need to refocus while the light just hit it. And and sometimes I think he, he aimed for the light on purpose to whack it. Like, ah, electric, I got your light. And, uh, <laughs> and then he would sit down and play the drums. It was he would just sit down for about two or three minutes to play the drums. Yep. And not to knock him, but he was a terrible drummer. He just did that. He was a bit but a bit of no, no, you know, he, you're not he the just, first to say it. It's okay. We're we're all right. You're okay, not the first yeah. to say it on this show. <laughs> and one time it was great. One time Phil Collins is the guest that night of the show. Oh. He's a talk and I think sing guest. And Dave usually didn't like to meet the guests ahead of time, so everything right. would be fresh when he comes on. But he's sitting there at the drum set, and Phil Collins walks in right behind him, says, "You never get any better." That was that was the interest. It was like, oh, hi, Phil. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you never get any better. You know, all, all, the, all the practice you've had, and, and that was it. So uh, that is a very cool moment you got Bill to see. To Zig Dave on his drumming skills. Oh, that is a very cool moment that you got to see that. Um, yeah. So, so on your day that you were uh, that you were posted 
inside the theater each week. Um, everybody who comes on the show seems to universally praise uh, if they got a chance to be a part of the music rehearsal. People in the offices who all had feeds in their office, uh, you know, of, of what was going on on the stage. Uh, would would talk about how they love to come down for the music rehearsal. Obviously, that is something that you really enjoyed as well. I really enjoyed that. And I love to be there. And uh, one of the things that impressed me about the show, and maybe the music producers had more to do this than Dave, is they would spot young talent, upcoming talent, before they were big. So yep. you get a band that you've never heard of before. Say, this song is pretty good. It has a catchy tune to it. And next thing you know, six months, a year later, that band is picking up the Grammy Award for Best New Act. And it's like, yeah. oh, we had them on a while back. And, and you know, and sometimes I would even forget six months later and, you know, someone remind me, yeah, but they were on the show. We, we did it. I, I, I'm thinking, oh, yeah, you're right. I, I, I think I shot them that night. <laughs> that, yeah. The band, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, what was the band? I think there was a band called, they were called Fun. And the and the song was called "We Are Young," and, and yeah, absolutely. I heard it. They, I, we rehearsed it like two or three times, and I and I thought that night I heard the song. I said, "This song is going to win the Grammy in six months from now for best new song." I, I knew it. I was about to post something on my social media page, like "Watch tonight" because this I saw something special tonight. Here. And sure enough. Uh, you know, several months later, that song won for best song. I, 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 I called it. And Dave and Dave's music producers had found this band before anyone had ever even heard of them. And yeah, I, uh, I, I, I've been people have actually reached out to me and said, hey, Mike, do you um, you have a you have a real affinity for Sheila Rogers? And I do. She is absolutely I cannot wait. Uh, if 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 the cards uh, ever reveal themselves that I can have a conversation with Sheila Rogers, I want to have uh, making their network television debut section of that conversation with her because the resume of that show of folks who have made their network television debut still like when you look at what Dave is doing now with my next guest, one of his guests on my next guest, handful of shows a year. But you look at like Lizzo made her network television debut on that stage. Um, mm -hmm. and, 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 and there are so many examples of that. I love the fact that you were present enough to think that anthem, we are young. And it was an anthem at that point. Like it just, mm -hmm. I mean, how many graduating classes use that song as their, <laughs> as their anthem yes. for when they graduated? Um, very cool that you got to see moments like that. The music rehearsal being a, a yeah, that is, that is, that is excellent. Um, I love that you can contrast in studio versus outside on 53rd street. Your preference was, even though you got to see these amazing moments and you got to be part of the show internally, mm -hmm. um, you, you, you preferred being outside. Yeah. I mean, the, the outside stuff was fun, but Jerry Foley was also smart enough to realize if he called in two extra cameras to, to be outside, well, during the music act, you could unplug from your outside cable and plug into an inside cable, and then you could be an extra camera inside. Right. So he would use us. He's like, okay, you're going to be outside for the motorcycle jump, but then come on in and go go park yourself up by the drum kit and get a shot of the drummer. And, yep. and okay, so you might as well use your resources. If you've got an extra camera, use it. And and we would, you know, I'd, I'd be up there shooting the drummer or shooting, you know, whatever, find a new camera angle that works, depending on who was there or where you could hide. There was a spots behind home base 
Yeah. Literally behind the two guest chairs. And I would be there on sort of on my hands and knees uh, with the camera low. And so I wouldn't be seen when Dave did the introduction and I could shoot, uh, you know, an artist. So hiding behind the guest chairs during music was a big thing. And, uh, you know, I'd be close enough to Dave. I think Dave, once or twice I felt a nudge on my butt with a, with a foot. I wonder if that's Dave messing with me. But I'm, uh, I'm so busy looking at the shot to look at it. But they also did, they were a bit inventive in terms of, they did things like river dance. Before river dance was big and famous, they were yeah. on the show. And, and you know, there they are, those whole bunch of them, they bare, barely fit on the stage. And uh, I thought, oh, this is, this is unique. It's not just rock and roll bands coming through, it's acts, musical acts. My own personal favorite, uh, I'm a Broadway geek and I love going to Broadway shows. And they would have a lot of Broadway performances. Yep. You know, Nathan Lane was in there a couple of times doing uh, a funny thing happened on the way to the forum and a few other. And, and when Once was out, they, the, the actors Once were, were there. And I always I was impressed because the Broadway actors uh, were much were really friendly. They, you know, basically were much more approachable. They would they would set up in the audience because there was so many of them and they'd come right up to you and say hi. And I'd, I'd be talking to them and it's like, what? oh, I saw your player. I got tickets to go see that next week. And then they would, they would just be very, very friendly and very talkative. The, the other actors that we got as guests, they weren't unfriendly, but the show almost deliberately kept them isolated. It'd be like yeah. they'd arrived, they'd yeah. get to the green room and they come out on stage and, and the, the crew had very little contact with, with the guests. And only if the guests, you know, wanted to, to, to say something and to meet you, but the Broadway people were like really like right there, and and they were just a fun bunch of people. I mean, Sutton Foster was there, you know, she's like the Broadway queen now, and she was yep. there singing a song from uh, Anything Goes, and she was just the friendliest girl. Walked right up, hi Sutton, and she was performing right across the street at where the Ed Sullivan Theater, and across the street from us is the Broadway Theater, yep. and the stage street from our stage door so so i'd see her almost every day for like two years she would come in she was doing shrek that was it they were in shrek and yeah. uh and and it's like oh this is great there's something there's there's some other big and and they were totally you know approachable people you could you know i said hi to her once or twice walking by she didn't know who i was but i'm like oh hi you know hi Sutton. and uh you know i learned i learned from that you know like i said the 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 actors that were on as guests, you didn't have a lot of contact with them. And there was sort of a, a rule that I learned as a, as a cameraman. Yep. You're there in the yeah. room, and, but you you can't really just walk up to a music act and, and say hi and, sh and, and introduce yourself. You kind of have to stay back and be a little more like, if they come up to you and say hi, and a few of them would, you know, shake your hand or whatever, then it's fine. But yep. you, yeah. the idea is not to not to bother them professionally invisible professionally invisible and you know i said it's okay to talk to them but don't bother them and it's something i've, I've take with i take away with me in my life every once in a while we'll be on an airplane and be a celebrity and it'd be like it's it's okay to say hi but don't start making demands of them like can i have an autograph can i do a selfie with you the minute you start asking them for stuff then you're bothering them uh, for you like, can i just interrupt one second for you uh, in that moment, I assume there would be a handful of times in your life where you could actually say, oh, hey, I shot you at dot, dot, dot. I, I, 
uh, something like that, I assume, is where you would have a bit of an advantage. You got a conversation starter with some of these people, I would think. I do. I mean, just about a year ago, we were on a plane and Michael J. Fox was on it. And they, they even loaded him ahead of time. So he's in first. So now we're all walking back to coach. We all have to walk by him. And I, I had shot him on the morning news. He was a guest on our morning news a couple of times. And I think he was a guest on Letterman, but I don't quite remember him, him yeah. being there those days. But I, I didn't really, you know, in that moment of walking past him, I didn't really have that time to start a conversation. I just said, hi, Michael, and kept on going. And, yeah. you know, my, I was like, oh, my God, it's Michael J. Fox. Can we talk to him? <laughs> no, honey, keep going. Keep going. Don't, don't bother the man. But, you know, but sometimes the, the actors, some of the actors would – uh, interact would want to interact with the crew. Well, a couple of times I was actually very impressed with Tom Cruise. Tom mm -hmm. Cruise won show several times, and one time, you know, most actors would come on, they do the interview with Dave, and by the time the interview was over, they'd be out the door and in their limo before we even got off the air. Well, unbeknownst to me, Tom hung around the green room afterwards, and then after the show, he came out onto stage and said, "If anyone wants to take their picture of me, it's okay." And, and he was hanging around talking to the crew and a bunch of guys took, took pictures with him. And uh, he, he hung around for at least 15, 20 minutes and, and we're talking to the guys. I thought, oh my God, this guy's not a prima donna. We know whether you like him or not, he's not a, the prima donna. He's even he said, he was like, he grew up in Syracuse, blue collar kid, not rich, not Hollywood elitist, but now, you know, now he is, but he doesn't act like an elitist. And so I, I was impressed with him that way. Uh, another band I was really impressed with was U2. U2 came on. One U2, time when U2 they come on for a week. They're yep. going to be the music every day for five days for the entire week. Well, Monday comes there and, and uh, you know, first the, the good musicians always show up on time. The, the mm -hmm. prima donnas come late. So U2 walks in, they're, they're 10, 15 minutes early. Bono walks right onto the stage, goes around, starts shaking hands with the crew. Wow. You know, hi, you know, hi. And we're all, you know, so now we're in a little circle and Bono's talking about his, his, his subject conversation was what, that if it hadn't been for the potato famine, the Beatles would have been an Irish band, not an English band. Because they were all transplanted Irishmen that, you know, the Irish moved over to the west coast of England to Liverpool and they had Irish names, McCartney, Lennon, Harrison. It's like, those are Irish names. He's like, he's like, yeah, they would have been an Irish band. I think we, we, we would be following in their footsteps, not you. Oh. And, and Bono's talking to us. They're like, wow, this is totally cool. Bono, that's how he out. opens? That's how he opens the five days? You know that it's going to be a good five days if that's how he comes out with uh, it's going to be loose. What a tone. He's setting a beautiful tone there. Yeah, that's some fun around the building and they did a couple skits and we did a, they did a couple skits down the control room and I was going to ask did you shoot them shoveling the snow did you shoot that I didn't I don't remember the shoveling the snow part I remember uh they they had a a, a ceremony I think where the mayor came out and they renamed 53rd Street is U2 Way. Yep. And so it was the cameraman that followed them. They walked out the side door and I followed them down the street. And then I was shooting them as they, you know, unveiled the the the, the street sign U2 Way. And I thought, oh, this is cool. And it stayed, the sign stayed there for the longest time afterwards. And eventually yep. they, they, they got rid of it. Uh, or somebody took the sign down. But you know, U2 was just really good. That, that that's that's what I noticed. The really good acts the, the totally professional acts 
they 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 show up on time. They rehearse as many times as they need to be rehearsed. Yep. You know, some of the prima donnas would barely show up or barely show up for the rehearsal. They do one take and they literally drop the mic on the stage and walk up like, okay, you've got your one rehearsal. That's it. Yeah. Okay. But, you know, this person's a real prima donna. But you know, Bruce Springsteen was there one time also, and he, you know, again, consummate professional. He played his, it was just Bruce doing acoustic or whatever and, and you know, showed up on time. And then Jerry said, okay, we've, you know, we've got, uh, we've got two or three takes, we're, we're fine, but there's 15 more minutes left in the rehearsal time if you want to, you know, do anything. And then Bruce would just start, just start playing songs. He started playing a couple of his acoustic songs and then he said, okay, we, you know, stage, we have to load the house now and he, he'd go up and yeah, he, he was he just was serenading the crew with a few acoustic songs like he he was enjoying it he was enjoying the moment and we were too um, and you know so oh, yeah. so again it, it's what i've learned what i tell people who say if you ever run into a celebrity you can say hi but don't bother them yeah and, and that was what yeah. i that was also something i learned about working with dave you know early on people were like saying watch don't talk to dave don't make eye contact with dave don't and I, and I found that was not true. It's like you, I passed them in the hallway several times and and I wouldn't not say, it would be very uncomfortable to say nothing. I'd be like, hi boss or hi Dave. And, and a few times I had a little interchange, inter, uh, uh, interchange. Interplay or interchange, yeah. You know, one time I bump into one, it's after the show, it's a Thursday and the next week is a dark week. And I'm, uh, and I'm like, hi Dave, how you doing, all right? You know, I'll say, well, you know, I, I was, Enjoy your dark week. Are you going to the Caribbean? He had a house in St. Bart's, whoever. And he's like, no, no, not Caribbean. I think I'm doing Montana this time. Like, yeah. okay, you know, he's got all these houses. He could go to Montana. Apparently he's Ted Turner's neighbor. But neighbor meaning they each have like, you know, hundreds of thousands. Ted yeah, he's a, he's a thousand acres over <laughs> that way. Land. He's like five miles yeah. down the road, but he's yeah. my next neighbor. You know, so, uh, you know, that was, that was it with Dave. He could, you could say hi you didn't have to run and hide or 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 you know shield your eyes from him or something he's not medusa he's he's, he's dave but I, I think when you're famous like that when you get uber famous and a lot of hollywood actors will tell you this that you suddenly lose privacy or that people they bother you and then they want something from you everyone wants an autograph they want a selfie they want you to please donate to my charity it's like okay you know don't don't bother them or make demands to them, but you can say hi and just uh, you know say hi and pass me and keep going. I uh, um, I appreciate that perspective very very much because I've heard it a lot. I think that is one of the reasons why uh, why you know um, the people who worked with him at the comedy store and, and and some of these other folks that have been there before the ascension uh, to becoming you know the professional that is David Letterman the, the the star that is David Letterman the franchise whatever the brand whatever you want to call it um, are so important to him those relationships because those are people who can still treat him like like a like a guy who's just a regular guy which is what Dave I think um, the charm that we all love about him and the reason that so many people uh, magnetized to him and 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 uh, his performances or his uh, his broadcasts were because he is just a just a guy he isn't he doesn't come across uh as a high and mighty showbiz guy even though you know we as an audience ascended him to that level um i i, you, I think you've done a really good job talking about that before we finish music um you know again music is, is such a uh, i love music so so much 
And the moments on that show that were out of the ordinary where you might have been utilized compared to a more traditional show, a Colbert, a Kimmel, a Fallon, whatever. Uh, Kimmel, Kimmel actually does quite a bit. He does this, uh, quite a bit of stuff live outside of, of his theater. But um, but I think about the big moments on the marquee, for example. You know, uh, this isn't a musical moment, but Dave and Regis smoking cigars on the marquee. Paul McCartney performing on the marquee. TV on mm-hmm. the radio performing on the, uh, on the fire escape. Eminem and Jay-Z on the roof or other things that happened on the roof. Um, any moments like that that you got to be a part of that come to mind? Yes, when Dave and uh, Dave and Regis were on the marquee smoking cigars. I love that moment. That's one of my favorite. If I could have inserted myself into a moment, that's a mm-hmm. tremendous one. I just love that. They were they were they were uh, recreating that moment from Boston Legal because at the end of every episode, Boston Legal, William Shatner and and uh, the other guy that they're always smoking a cigar, talking about something and. That day, it was actually a stressful day for me because we have a jib and that's it's a camera at the end of a, a long arm. Yep. And it's, it's some people call it a crane or a boom, but it's, it's a jib. And I yep. operate that too. So that's that's one of my extra skills operating the jib. Well, to get, it, it has extensions, it has three foot sections. So normally it's 12 feet long or so, uh, but it can go up to 30 feet long. It's oh, a God. super God. giant extension. And they said, you know, I came in at like 10 o'clock in the morning and they said by three or four this afternoon, we have to have a 30 foot jib. And so uh, Steve Kaufman, who is who you I think, you know, and Steve Kaufman and I were friends and Steve and I would we, we commuted out of the same train station together. So I'd see him on the train all the time. Yeah. So we go in there. We have to now we're like, you know, with with, with the wrenches and I'm undoing the, the, the arms and adding the extension pieces and. I knew how to operate the jib, but I only built it a few times. So now we're having to quickly remember how do we how do we put this on? And eventually we got all together, 30 foot jib. And then the only way to shoot it is to be out in the middle of Broadway. Yeah. Because we got to be up. The, the arm goes up and Dave and, and, and Regis are on the Marquise. And now at some point, you know, we're, we're, we, we've got this little wooden ramp. We're trying to not make not let the thing tip over because that's catastrophic if that happens so we wheel it out and we got like three people holding the the base of the tripod and we're wheeling it out and you know i get out there and now the chief and a few other security guys are literally blocking the left two or the right two lanes of broadway just yep ushering the cars to go around us and you know i'm there and the only and now to get the arm high i'm the controls are down on the ground so i'm there on my knees with the the thing the weights are practically scraping against the ground and they they do the whole thing it takes about 10 minutes or so and then yeah that's one of the things i like about dave there's no let's do five six ten takes of this it would be like one take we nailed it let's go and that's it but usually not you just do it once and and that's what we got and uh and then we put, then we had to unbuild the thing and put it all away. Yep. But uh, I got to shoot that moment of, of David Regis. Unfortunately, when Paul McCartney was up there, I was I was working that day, but I was in the broadcast center. I was doing the soap opera. And for some reason, there were too many cameramen already leaving the soap. And they said, no, you can't, you can't, we can't give you up. There was some negotiation between the, the tech people there and, and tech people over it. At late show, so I didn't get to do it. I was so ready to just, you know, I walk bet out. you were. <laughs> I turned on a monitor. We could call up the beads from across town. That's all. It's all playing. It's great. Uh, 
so I didn't get to do that day, but I've, I've got to do a bunch of others. And uh, were you ever on the roof? I got to on the roof a whole bunch of times. I got to go on the uh, on on the top of the marquee a few times, and then up on the the 14th floor, we did some stuff up there. They did a few bands up there, and they did yep. other tickets. And for the life of me, I'm trying to remember. There there would be sometimes we would go up there to get beauty shots, or we'd go up to the seventh floor. I'd be going out the window. I remember yep. one time it was a question of, let's see if a guy in in a, a donkey costume can get into flash dancers. <laughs> and flash dancers were right across the street on Broadway. And and they didn't want the camera to be there because if the camera's right there on the sidewalk, it's going to be obvious what the joke is. So we're on the seventh floor. I think it was like Tim Kennedy's office or one of the next door offices shooting. Oh, it was Jerry Foley's office. That's what it was. Shooting out, shooting down. And sure enough, there's a guy wearing this goofy, uh, like donkey costume or bear costume. And he'd walk up, you know, Dave said, let's see if he can do it. And we, you know, there I am shooting. And this guy got in the bouncer. There's always a bouncer at the door. And he just opened the door, let the guy with the donkey costume walk in. Like, like it's, I think it's strange thinking this, this is this normal for flash dancers where people in donkey costumes go walking into it. But I, I think after a while, they realized they had done the same thing a couple of times. So they realized, oh, this is one of Dave's people coming in. Uh, absolutely. And, and and the business owners having uh, around the uh, around the area, uh, having a, um, you know, an awareness uh, that, mm -hmm. hey, they could be featured in something really, really fun here uh, could happen at any time. And and, and I love that. The, the flash dancers, my favorite flash dancer, dancers moment ever has to do with. Um, a guest that I would, who's in my top five, I would love to have on here, especially on the celebrity side. He might actually be number one now that I think about it. I want to have Brian Williams on here in such a bad way. Like I love Brian Williams as a broadcaster. Uh, I love him as an entertainer. And especially I love him as a late show guest. And one of my favorite moments was <laughs> Brian finishes his segment with Dave. It was great as always. They all were. And uh, they were, it was one of these shots you were talking about and they were going to record Brian because they, th they had made a big to do about the fact that he was going to go back to 30 rock to do the NBC evening news. And he was leaving and walking down the street and, and, and they had a shot of Brian leaving, walking down the street, supposedly to go back to 30 rock. And uh, there he is. Nope. He's turning, making a left-hand turn, walking right into flash dancers. And that was one of my favorite. I love that moment so, so much. Uh, I don't know if you shot that or not, but, but thanks for bringing up that. that. I remember that moment. But I think that was that was obviously set up like perfect, like, just know. perfect. Um, I love Williams that was, he was, was that, that relaxed kind of guy. Brian Williams was the kind of guy that could do that. He would say, "Yeah, this is a joke. Let's do this." And I had worked with Brian. He was at CBS when I first came in the '80s. He was doing our local news before he went over to NBC. Yeah, and uh, you know, and he was just that kind of guy. That kind of, he he would love. You know, he could he could goof around with a guy. He was a totally normal sort of a guy. And uh, I love Brian Williams that way. And he, Absolutely. I, I, I like, yeah. And he was a perfect, he was a natural to be on the evening news. I thought we we should have held on to him and he could have been, you know, the, the our evening news replacement. But, you know, if that's the way things go. Well, I, you know, we're, we're, and it's we're funny, at, you know, you look at Brocon rather, um, and, and, you know, Jennings and Donaldson and all that great, but, but I look at Brocon rather, those were probably, I'm a Canadian, but we had all the American feeds up here, of course, growing up. Those two guys rather in Brocon, Brocon were kind of my guys. Uh, when Brocon left and Williams kind of came up and, and I re realized like, and I would, of course, the Letterman connection was a huge, huge thing. 
I would love when he would sit in the chair and Dave would try and make him uncomfortable because I think, and, and I mean, you can speak to this too, because you, you, you have so much uh, news on your resume as well. I mean, we haven't even gotten into, I, I need to have you back, Daniel, because, because um, some of the things that you, we haven't talked about on your resume, uh, I think are, are, are very much worth talking about news being one of them. Brian is one of those guys who Dave could just make him uncomfortable trying to get him to form an opinion about something because he wanted to be so straight down the middle and they would, mm -hmm. I would love when they would play with that idea where he would get, Dave would try and say something so obvious when it came to common sense to get Brian to weigh in on it. And Brian wouldn't do it because he didn't want to show an opinion on things. And I think that that is something that our generation used to really appreciate about our newscasters. And that's something that's kind of gone now. Most news broadcasters show personal opinion on things. Yes. And I think you're right. There's a, there is a lot more bias yep. in the news these days. And of course, you know, left wing, right wing, I don't want to get into all that, but no. you're right. I mean, the old school was, was you had to try to be non-biased. It would, you know, the Walter Cronkite era. And back in those days, there was actually an FCC mandate that you had to present both sides of the story. And, and it would, the rule was just present the facts. Just hear the facts. This happened. This happened. Don't give an opinion as to this was a good thing. That was a bad thing. It was his fault. No, just hear the facts. And that's the way Walter Cronkite did it back in the day. And you're right. We have lost that. And there is a reason why. But, uh, you know, it's it's a lot to go into as far as news, news history now. Yeah. But you but, were there um, as as you know, these uh, broadcast institutions uh, then suddenly became, uh, you know, one of many wings of these different corporations that have come in and bought. Uh, broadcasting has certainly changed and, and, and you've watched this evolution happen. Uh, fascinating, a fascinating take um, because, you know, professionally invisible, but yet at, at the same time, you see all of these things that happen around you. Um, I, I, I appreciate how mindful you are because you, it's not that you're unaware of these things that have gone around you, uh, on around you, the history that you've seen, uh, the progression. I want to get to uh, the progression of Late Show and the, the franchise that did not exist. Dave came over and as a beautiful gift to the Tiffany Network, giving a late night franchise for the very first time, uh, you know, that, that could compete with The Tonight Show, all of that. You saw that transition um, when it showed up and then when it moved over to Stephen Colbert. I want to talk about that. I want to finish with that. But uh, at the end of the day, uh, I want to do some show and tell first because that's I'm a collector. I love collecting things. I've got uh, a whole bunch of swag here. I know you do. And I want to talk year, about some of this stuff. So you got one, I'm two, three, four, five, five jackets behind you. Um, and I mean, you've got some of the most famous ones. Famous one. I love that. Very one. end when Dave yep. was, it says, thank you. And, and it is the year of the year is 15. So yep. it's the thank you jacket for all the years of service that you've given us. Now and that you've said that, <laughs> let's stay on that night for a second, because that jacket was handed out the day of the last show. Were you there for the last show? I was there for the last show. What did you shoot? I, I was in back of the control room okay. for the final, final thing. Uh, it wasn't the camera that shot Tim Kennedy, but it was what, like the back of the house camera and Earlier on, there were different things that we did. And for the for the finale, actually, the finale was the Foo Fighters doing yes. Everlong. And I got to be, I was sort of the back of the house shooting the band for that. 
And we, we had to rehearse several times because the music had to match up with the video. And because there's one moment where he the song goes and she said, pause, and just then Farrah Fawcett, Farrah Fawcett. Is going, what? And, and the, the timing had to be perfect on that and they nailed it. I mean, we, on the rehearsal, they, they nailed it. But the final... There was a there was some there was some jiggling that had to be done. Is 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 slightly off. It might have been slightly off by about a second or so. So they did a little bit of editing on, and yep. then this talk about food fighters. Thank Dave you very Lump, much. They have a T-shirt. That's my most coveted item right there. Yep. On Dave and on the back, it actually gives all the dates that they were on. I did not realize that they were on so many times. Yep. But uh, Dave even talked about. Uh, the funniest story, Dave, I think it was at the final show, Dave talked about after his heart, his heart surgery, uh, Sheila Rogers said, you know, we could have anyone you want for your first show back. And he said, I want the Foo Fighters. Yeah. And then she said, well, they're in South America doing a concert tour. So we can't get them. And then the next day she said, we got the Foo Fighters. They canceled a couple of shows in South America or postponed them to come back just to do Dave and just to fly back. I think they realized they they owed some of their success to, to the publicity Dave gave them because yeah. he just loved them so much. And I, and that was the, another fun moment that at the rap party, at it was at MoMA, so we're there at the rap party, Dave Grohl and the other guys in the band are there. And I'm talking to Dave Grohl, it was me, Steve Kaufman, we're all talking to him and he's just a totally, totally down to earth, normal guy. He really yeah. was. Yeah. And I unfortunately don't, so I mean, normally I, I would say, hey, you know, I like you. Let's exchange phone numbers and keep in touch. I didn't do that. But Dave Grohl and Steve Kaufman, apparently they exchanged phone numbers. And then the Foo, the Foo Fighters played Madison Square Garden, you know, a year or two later. And, I, and Steve Kaufman said, yeah, I went to the show and I went backstage afterwards. Dave Grohl had invited, had given me a backstage pass. So I went backstage and saw them. I'm like, oh, my God, like you, you've got to do this. And I should have. I should have made more of an effort to to friend it up to the band or something like that. That I wouldn't know how what to say anyway. But uh, it's that it's that careful line though, and 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 some people negotiate that line differently. Um, but I I appreciate where you're coming from. I appreciate the fact that we can talk about Steve Kaufman here uh, a little bit as 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 we talk about more of your swag and and, and the different memories because. Um, you know, Rick Sheckman, there he is right there. He's in the studio for every show that we do. Um, you know, this show doesn't exist without Checky. Uh, when Steve passed, you know, Rick had some significant things to say about him. Uh, you talk about somebody who was the fabric of that show in so many ways, again, professionally invisible. Uh, you worked with Steve for years. Uh, very, very sad when he, when he passed. Yeah, it really was. It was sort of a shock because it, he wasn't sick or anything. It was a sudden sudden you know her heart just stopped beating in the middle of the night and that was it we were away i was in uh florida with the family on vacation and so i missed the funeral but the, uh, as soon as i got back i drove up to his house and i knew his sister because uh and we sat shiva for the night but because when he went to the he never he never got married but he went to the emmy awards and that was another whole story every time he got nominated for, for creative arts emmys the show would pay for our plane ticket and hotel. So we got to the West Coast. Steve brought his sister out. So I got to know his sister. And and so it was very sad after he passed away. We, we did the Shiva. And, uh, and you know, it was, Steve was just a really happy guy. You know, he was he was always had a smile on his face. And he was a hardworking sort of guy. And, and anytime I needed something, it's like, 
Steve, where do we, where do we get this? How do we do that? And anything technical, he knew where it all was in the theater. It's like, Steve, how do I get a shot from over here? It's like, oh, there's, there's a cable drop over here. I'll plug you in. And, you know, Steve just knew where all the, all the bits and pieces were. And he was one of the guys that kept the, uh, kept the machine running. I was going to say you and he kind of complimented each other. Like you were more the the 53rd street guy, the handheld guy, whatever. Steve was more of a a home base guy. Is that fair? Safe to say? Yeah. He was a home base guy. He was, his job description is called utility. The utility does everything. They helped run cables. They help move monitors. They, and anything needs to be done. Uh, You know, if we're doing three cameras on 53rd street, he would bring the cables out, plug them into the box where they, they and run the cables out and help you, you know. And then if you're running down the street, he's there with a cable in his hand running behind you. So you had enough, you know, slack to get to where you needed to go. I don't think I ever had a case in all those years where I couldn't get there because the cable, you know, yanked back because Steve was on it. He's, he, he was there. I mean, there, there were times, I remember one case, I wasn't sure I'd be able to make it because that Al was one of the other handheld guys. They said, you're going to go into the alleyway and look for rats because there were jokes about rats in the alley. So this other guy, Al, he's on that side of the stage. He, he goes into the alley for rats. And then uh, Dave tells Alan Coulter and unrehearsed, he's like, Alan, why don't you go out there and see if Al needs any help? And Al is like four rungs up on the ladder. And Alan Coulter's about to go, and he's like, Jerry Foley says, take four, Danny, go get him. And I'm like, ah, we have to now run across the stage, around the corner, into an alleyway. I don't know if I've got enough cable, but Steve was right behind me. Next thing you know, there was never, there was no issue with, with not having cable. And I had a cable, and you know, next thing you know, Alan Coulter, who had a good sense of what's funny, uh, climbs halfway up the ladder, and his face is by Al's butt. <laughs> And, and and it was just that image of his face looking at the guy's rear end as oh I think he uh, he doesn't need any help Dave it's okay and you know now Alan was one of those guys who just had that perfect Dave liked deadpan humor so if you could read your lines with a perfectly monotone straight face that's why Pat and Kenny did Oprah transcripts so well they were just deadpan Alan Coulter could do his thing totally deadpan. And Alan, Alan had some of my funniest moments. And, you know, once or twice, I actually started to laugh. And I'm, I'm shooting him with the hand camera on my shoulder. And whatever it is, is so funny. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> and the camera's starting to shake. And Paul's like, Larry, take a breath, will you? And I, and I, I you know, stop, I had to stop laughing. You oh, no, it's too funny. I, I, if you know the joke ahead of time, you've seen it in rehearsal. Now you won't be laughing at so much, but if it's something spontaneous, it could it could just hit you at, at the wrong moment. It's being funny, guy. But as a cameraman, you have to try to stay detached from the humor. Like Absolutely. You know, just keep shooting it. Don't laugh at it. Don't get too crazy with it. Um, Dan, you can tell how much of a professional you are in 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 this uh, being in front of the camera right now because you have managed to take. Uh, you know, we're going from 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 the swag segment, but we actually uh, have a story that includes a beautiful little memoriam of two of 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 the Late Show family of Alan and, and Steve. Uh, that is a delightful, delightful story. Um, what else you got there? Oh, credentials! Look at the credentials. Credentials, a whole bunch of them, and I don't even know why they give out so many. Here was a Christmas gift. 
from, I think this is Paul gave this late show pair of binoculars. Oh, that is awesome. We talk about Christmas gifts on this show. That's great. And I, I heard it had like a, a little thing you could actually take pictures of, but you know, little spyglass binoculars. And of course, this is one of my favorites a nice leather backpack. And it oh, that is so cool. Oh, from 10, from the 10th year. Each of the 10th year. And there, there was like a T-shirt every year that had yep. the I'm uh, wearing one of them. The year on it. Oh, you've got one. Yes, Late Show 21. I've got at least three or four backpacks, a computer bag, so a, a laptop computer bag. Yeah. You know, jackets, jackets of the yin yang sweatshirts. This thing is a one of my favorite. Jerry Foley, I think, gave these out a sweater vest or yep. a uh, fleece vest with Late Show on it. So this is one I get a lot of use out of this thing. So. Uh, do you wear the jackets ever? Yes, I do. Uh, I can't remember. There, there's one. It's one that's hanging up over there. One, one of the later ones. One of my favorite ones. It's got different uh, different colors on. Says Late Show on it. Some of them just say like this one. Worldwide, one, yeah. Worldwide P. Or you know, one one of them just said pants. Yeah, I've that's got that one. I wear that. One. That's probably my most worn one. I wear that one outside all the time. I love that one. Ninety nine. That's the one that got me the most questions. Like, yeah. what's what's pants? Uh, like, okay, well, that explains worldwide pants, David Letterman's company, and, and blah blah blah. You know, so that that one, I, I somehow I didn't wear that one as often because I got tired of answering the dumb question. Of, <laughs> what does pants mean? Why why are you advertising your pants? But a few others here, the red one, and uh, I understand Dave himself. He started months ahead of time looking at catalogs and he would pick out he was he was very hands-on in terms of the, the color and design of the jacket that year. And a couple of them had the nice leather sleeves. I really yep. love the uh letterman styles and the jacket, the sleeves. They were all very nice. I almost you know, I almost didn't want to wear wear them because it's like, oh, they're so nice, I don't want to wear them out, but then it would be almost disrespectful not to wear them. So as soon as they gave them out, it was just before Christmas, we would all wear them for the next couple of weeks. Uh, Dave would see us, you know, wearing the jackets. It, it was so cool uh, from, from, from being an audience member's perspective, um, you know, because they would constantly turn the cameras around. And, and as Tim and I talked about, light up the audience and that kind of a thing. And you would look and you would see everybody from Inky, uh, all the way to all the different uh, folks, cameramen and 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 grips and and cable guys like Steve or whatever, you'd see how many of them were wearing the jackets. Sometimes you'd see different shots of of two different crew members wearing two different jackets, and and it felt like uh, from an audience perspective, uh, being part of a sort of an exclusive club, seeing those things. Dave wears them himself. On on on. Uh, I, well, the one that comes to mind right away is Belinda Gates's episode of My Next Guest. He's wearing the red one you got you got back there, or the red and white one you've got back there. Um, in his latest video where they're giving away a piece of the marquee, I don't know if you saw that, he and Paul are wearing, you know, he's wearing one of the, his his Late Show ones. And it's cool to see that. Uh, we want to do a jacket episode, uh, but the thing about it is, really, there's only probably three people uh, that, that, that could definitively do a jacket episode. Why did you choose these colors? Why did you choose this particular year? I think about Michelle's year. Um, you know, the special jacket they did for her with the M on it um, under Late Show. Uh, but really, it's really only Dave or Lori or Mary uh, would be the ones that we could talk to about that because it was right from that office, wasn't it? It was. Yeah, yeah it was. It was uh, I understand Dave himself uh, designed yeah. it. So 
It would be only those. Have you gotten any of those people? You got Mary or uh, Laurie? No, no. Uh, I have a, I have a, um, let's just say a very healthy fear of Mary Barkley. <laughs> um, I've met her a couple of times, uh, but I haven't gotten her. And, uh, and, and I mean, just to do a jacket episode, like, I mean, if we were to get Dave on here, I mean, obviously it would be, you know, beyond that, but I would have him on here just to do a jacket episode. I, uh, you know, that'd be, it's fascinating to me. Um, how many different variations there were, how they would play on different things. Some of them are throwbacks to the old late night days. You've got yeah. the one behind you there uh, beside thank you and good night. That is basically a late show recreation of the original late night jacket, the yellow and blue one on the other side. Um, oh, that's a, that's the Red Sox kind of one, that one right there. Yeah. And, and yeah. that one there is kind of the recreation of the original late night jacket, but it says late show on it. So, um, Lots of different ones. Yeah, that one there. That's 2011. Yeah. You've got the one I never got. The, the first one said Ed Sullivan. Yeah, it's, I've got that one. I love that one. I didn't get that one because I wasn't on the crew that first year. So I didn't get that one. I was like, so, oh, I really would like to have that one. That was a lot of, for some people, that was their favorite one. I was, uh, yeah, I love, I wear that one. I, you know, it's funny. I wear the pants one probably more than any. Uh, thank you and good night. I've only worn a few times. I've done stand up a couple times. I've worn it when I've done stand up, but uh, uh, the the Ed Sullivan one is the one I actually get the most comments on. It's just so sharp and 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 uh, and and people, you know, it's a it's it's a, it's a, a throwback to a foregone era, and I get a lot of baby boomers who who look at that and say, oh, what is, what is that? And and um, it's fun to talk about it. Uh, I appreciate you taking time. Please, uh, I'm going to say this and preload it and say it with the record light on. Please come back. You and I uh, can can continue our, any other anecdotes you think of and, and we can just do little pickup stories and things. We're going to have episodes of the Letterman podcast where we have some folks who remember a story and they just want to tell one story and we'll collect two or three of them for an episode. We're going to be doing that. Please come back, Dan. This has been so much fun. Um, I want to talk about the transition. Uh, because you're you were there when you know again this franchise that really for the first time became CBS's franchise. I mean, it was broadcast on their airwaves, but it was Dave's show uh, because he walked into this amazing, unprecedented deal where he owned it. And then suddenly, the changing of the guard. Dave says, "I'm retiring from the late uh, from late show. Yeah. It's now CBS's franchise." They tap Stephen Colbert to come over and 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 take the job. You were there for the transition, and I'm fascinated. You and I talked a little bit about uh, about this off camera, and how there's a professional desire for you to get in there full time right now, which I think is so charming and a testament to that building, to 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 the show itself. Um, what was the transition like between uh, May to August, and uh, what was your role in that? Well, the transition was. I mean, we had the, the final show and and all that, and we knew that Stephen was bringing his cameraman with them so that that we wouldn't be working. It's funny because uh, one of the executives who was there uh, uh, was there like a few weeks ahead of time. And I reminded him that Stephen works with prompters, that we may have to buy prompters to put on the cameras. So he's like, oh, thanks for, for telling me that. I didn't know that. Yep. Okay, so, and, and then uh, it's funny that literally the next day after the final show, I get an email saying, please come clean out your locker. And the finality of it all hit me. Like, so I went over and, and uh, had a locker, took my lock off. I had a little name plaque that I, you know, taped on there, glued on. So I had to take that off and then cleaned all the stuff out. 
and took it over to the broadcast center and put it in my locker there. So mm. I said, okay, this is now I know it's final. And and then I was doing, I was in the broadcast center the day of Stephen's premiere episode. I was in the broadcast center. And one of the my scheduling supervisors comes running in saying, quick, we need to go over to the late show. And I was like, you're kidding. He said, no, one of Stephen's cameramen got sick. I think that the day before the premiere show, they've been over there rehearsing for two weeks. He was eating oysters or something and got a bad oyster. And now he's violently ill and he can't do the show. So now I'm running over. And this is this is the thrill where, where these other guys have been in there for two weeks rehearsing, rehearsing. I haven't yeah. seen the theater yet. And I'm going to go on the air. And I go oh run over there. And it's like, we did a quick rehearsal and, and, you know, and then I'm on the air, like, okay, I think I, I think I got this. And there were no major mistakes. And that was there for the first two nights in a row. And then the director said, you did a good job, but this other guy is coming back, you know, next week. But he, but the, the, uh, the one guy was older. He, he was John, John Michael, John was his name. A, a, a cameraman, he passed away a few years ago. And it's too bad you couldn't get him on because he had, old time stories of like when the Mets first were, when the Mets first started in 1962 and they played at the polo grounds in the in, in Manhattan, he was a cameraman there. So he was like from the 1950s and 60s and then followed Stephen into the early 2000s. And he was, and then he was getting old and we knew he was gonna retire at some point. And, uh, you know, I so he called in sick a few times. I filled in, I jumped in and this other guy took, anytime somebody took a week off, I would be like the 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 guy they called, and so I would be like uh, the fill-in guy. And then COVID hit, and the show basically went remote from Stephen's house for for months and months, the better part of a year. And then, you know, basically the, there's there's not as many opportunities to go over there and fill in because the regular guys don't take that much time off or you know, or whatever, but, but so uh, I'm there rarely, but it's every, and once every couple months, I'll fill in for a day. And I'm amazed at, it is the most organized show. It's very more organized that, yep. than Dave's show. It's streamlined they, and predictable, right? It's, it's, it's more scripted and predictable, yep. but I mean, behind the scenes, they're very organized. Like when I never knew walking to Dave's show, who was going to be on, what was the guest or what was going to happen that day. With the Colbert, as soon as they called me up and said, are you available? Can you work tomorrow? Somebody is sick. Within 15 minutes of that, an email comes through with PDF files showing, here's the rundown for tomorrow, the schedule, when everyone comes in, their full rehearsal schedule and, and the crew list. And, and it's everything is there. Yep. And they follow their, their schedule to the, oh, wow, you know, like, wow, he's really... It, they, they follow it to the letter and, and it's really well done. And it's really, uh, they, they stick to the script. And, you know, I, and, you know, Stephen's humor is totally different. It's political satire and well, as opposed to Dave's off the wall goofy humor, but it's still very funny in its own way. Yeah. And so it's, it's. Uh, With big moments know, too, big musical moments still. Like there's that's, yep. guests were like yep. the, uh, you know, his guests, he, he, he tends to lean more towards politicians. He loves the big politicians. If he could get like an Obama as a guest or a, a big name politician, 
I'm sure he'd be he'd be taking them on. So I'm not even sure who who all he's had because I don't I do when CBS puts me on the morning news. I gotta get up at 3 a.m. to go in by by 4:35 in the morning to do morning news. The last thing I can do is stay up late and watch Late Show. But yeah, well, I catch it when I can and DVR it when I can. And uh, you know, he's he, he's good. He's very good. And Stephen is very smart. He's a sharp guy. He takes care of his crew the same way Dave did. They but they all really take care of their crew. If the crew needs something, they make sure it's there and they get it. You know, if so Stephen uh, is good. Oh, go so, you know, someday I may work on on his show full time. Uh, you know, uh, it's it's one of those one of those dreams. I like being. It's fun being away from the broadcast center because that's where all the bosses are. It's it's more like okay, we're, we're in our own little side bubble over here that uh, we you know we could do our own thing and, and the show gets made and and that's it. And, we had John I, Philo on recently, and uh, photographer John Philo, and and he that's exactly the same sentiment that he expressed you know he's got his office at the broadcast center but boy when he got to go to the ed sullivan he would do it for fun sometimes he would just go in uh you know to 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 to, to have a different a change of environment that sort of a thing he would go there when he wasn't necessarily even assigned outside of his shift and just go and 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 hang out there and see what he could would take take pictures of and and uh yeah he he expressed that sentiment as well as that it's it's fun to be uh, just hang around in that environment, and 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 uh, it was a it was a different vibe than the broadcast center. So so I appreciate where you're coming from. Uh, so if you have the chance to go over to work uh, late show, you're going to take it. Well, absolutely. Anytime they call, and I, I let them know if, if somebody's out, call me. I'll I'll drop whatever I'm doing in in the broadcast center and tell my bosses get somebody else to replace me over there doing the, some talk show or news, and uh, I'll, I'm running over to Colbert. Oh, good for you, Dan. That's that's fantastic. I hope that that happens for you. I hope a a permanent position comes up and 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 you can go there and and um, you know, have another phase of this unbelievable career that you've had. As I close up uh, our first conversation here uh, with with having you on the Letterman podcast, Dan, is there anything else that you kind of uh, wanted to talk about today or thought about talking about today? A little bit of potpourri at the end. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to say on your first appearance on the Letterman podcast? Let's see. I'm thinking one of the things that you mentioned, I think, during your Tim Kennedy interview is how, how, how we had to be able to react quickly. Yes. And and one of the things that Dave did every night, just before the show, Eddie Brill would introduce him. So you want to meet Dave, Dave would come running out and he would maybe field two or three questions from audience members before we started the opening music. And you had to be paying attention to the questions. And then Jerry, because the, the, the guests weren't really, I mean, the, the people in the audience were mic'd, of course. So Jerry Foley wanted to know what, what was that? That was, okay, that guy over there asking a question about Dave Mom. That guy over there asking a question about this. And, and somebody else asked a question about that. And then almost every night, Dave would come out and he'd start with, I'm Dave Letterman. This is The Late Show. And, you know, I just want to visit my mother. And be like, oh, that you know, there, there would be a, reference to like a callback like a callback to that then and, and you'd have to quickly know that guy asked that question that guy asked and that guy asked that question so be like oh he makes a reference to to stupid petrix oh that that was the guy who asked when are you gonna have stupid petrix on next so and then jerry foley quickly take a shot of that guy in the audience and there'd be that extra it was the in joke that only the audience in the theater got but we had to quickly be there and be paying attention to what's going on. It was a show that you had to pay attention to what was going on and 
again, expect the unexpected because Dave would deliberately, he would deliberately change stuff from rehearsal just to see, can you, can you quickly catch up and follow me? And that was the, the thrill and the fun of it. It's being, being ready to go. And then the handheld cameras had to be the ones to run and chase the guys. So, uh, that was that was the fun. It was a fun show in that that respect. A oh, crazy Dan. show. Oh, Dan, Dan, Dan. Uh, from our original, uh, the way that you and I started interacting with each other originally, um, I just loved it so much uh, because we became Facebook friends. And one of the things I said to you was, "Do you know what's going to happen next?" Uh, and it was me, of course, inviting you onto the onto the show here. Uh, but the thing is, I love to not reveal a ton of stuff. Some some of the folks, the staffers, have watched this show from the beginning or, or or from a certain point, and they know about this. You aren't one of those people, which I adore, but unfortunately, we're going to annoy the audience right now because the moment somebody gives me an opportunity to talk about this, I talk about it again. You have unwittingly done that because uh, I'm looking for people who were part of this moment. You might have been part of this moment. Um, so this here, and actually, I've got another copy of it behind me, but this here is um, that's Dave during the Q&A, and that's me. That's Dave talking to Paul Schaefer, making fun of me, and the entire audience laughing at me. This is a month before <laughs> you guys were done. It's mm -hmm. during the Q&A. I was a brat. I was asking Dave a bratty question, and he, uh, you know, we got about five minutes out of it. It was one of those Q&As that actually went over 530, uh, mm -hmm. because at the end, I know he went longer. And the very first thing that happened when he came out for the monologue, we, we were talking about my jacket, the jacket color. Uh, I had asked him for a, for a pants jacket, didn't get it. I had asked him if Brian Williams or Jay Leno were going to be on the show before the end of the run. Uh, he brought Nancy out. She talked about that uh, with, with us. And then he started making fun of my jacket, which was salmon in color. And mm -hmm. uh, we were going back and forth. Uh, he then dropped the mic, ran off stage, came back on stage. Uh, this is April 20th, 2015. And then the first thing that comes out of his mouth, if you're really good, we'll give you a jacket. And boom, there it is. Shot of me in the audience. Yep. Dream coming true as a Letterman fan because you always wanted to be one of those people that was a recipient of the callback. There mm -hmm. it is. And you just gave me the opportunity to talk about it, much to the chagrin of uh, the audience of the Letterman podcast because I talk about <laughs> it any chance I get. Who knows? Mm -hmm. You might have been the guy that shot it. I don't I know. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> but it's the dream come true of any fan. Um, I love your sentiment though, that anything could, could happen. And, um, and you certainly were the guy that got to receive the ball when, you know, okay, anything can happen. We're throwing the ball this, to, uh, to Dan. And you're the guy that got to receive that ball many times. Uh, what a, what a thing you got to be a part of man. And what a family you got to be a part of. Mm-hmm. I loved it. I really loved it. I loved being part of the family and and being there as often as I could and just being part of something that was crazy. It, it's just a wild, it was like a wild ride every night. And, you know, the fact that you didn't know what was going to happen, it was, uh, you didn't know what was coming around the bend. So uh, it was, that was cool. I'm there. Right. I have, I have many more stories for you, but uh, the podcast can't go forever, but, but I could. Okay. So here's what we're going to do. Get, a, get yourself a little notepad or a note on your phone. And anytime you think of one of these little stories, anytime they get jogged, just do a little point form. You can remind yourself of it. Once you get three or four of them, let's do it again. And and I thank you. You're our first cameraman on here. We want to get them all. Uh, everybody's got a different perspective, obviously. Um, thank you so much for taking time out of your day off today 
Uh, you've got early mornings and, and I mean, I, I would love to talk about some of the things you're doing now. Hopefully the next time that you're on, you're a full-time member of, of, of late show again. Uh, but Dan, I just want to say thank you so much for taking time out of your day off to be part of the Letterman podcast today. I, I couldn't appreciate it more. All right. Well, you're welcome. And uh, it was great to be here. Awesome. I'll do a real quick outro. Next time. I'm oh. going to make a little list of funny stories. Thank you so much. And folks, I want to, I want to get everybody who, um, who, who would like to tell their story on here, because again, I was saying this to somebody last night, uh, uh, talking about some of the upcoming guests that we have. And I was like, uh, Dan Flaherty is an A-lister for me. You're an A-lister for this show. And you are a prime example as to why this is the behind the scenes stuff that many of us just love to hear. And uh, anybody that you could think of that's on the crew in any way, I would love to give them the same opportunity. So thank you for this. I'll shoot a really quick outro and then I'll come back to you. We could say our goodbye privately if that's okay. Okay, sure. All right. All right. Uh, that's, that's it right there. There's uh Dan Flaherty right there. This is why we do the show. Of course, uh, the Letterman podcast is a celebration of the greatest body of broadcasting work in history. That of David Letterman and company, uh, today is a phenomenal example of the company part of that, uh, guy, uh, Dan Flaherty just worked there for so long and has so many rich, uh, amazing experiences that came from this and him being willing to share it. That's what this show is all about. Um, that has been another episode of the Letterman Podcast with Mike Chisholm. Coincidentally, I am Mike Chisholm. Thank you and good night. Overcoat and underpants. <laughs>